0: Please go ahead and open your Bibles back up to John chapter 12, make it uh, easy to follow along. But before we go ahead and dive into the passage, I want to say a few things about a strange but very important word that shows up in today's text, and that word is none other than Hosanna. Hosanna. Now, if you've been around church or even this morning, right, for any length of time, you've heard this word. Hosanna more than a few times, uh, especially in our singing. And now I have to admit something. For the longest time, I didn't really know what this word actually meant. I just assumed its meaning, that it meant something like hallelujah or praise the Lord, you know, something along that line. But since I'm generally a fan of knowing what words are actually coming out of my mouth, and I imagine you guys are too, Here's what Hosanna actually means. Hosanna is a Hebrew expression that literally means, save us, we pray. Help us, we beg of you. So Hosanna is actually this desperate cry for rescue, for salvation, and it's most famously found in Psalm 118, which was our first reading for today. Now what does this cry of Hosanna have to do with any of us? And my answer to that simply is everything, everything. In fact, I'd argue that this cry of Hosanna is on every single heart here today, whether you consider yourself to be particularly religious or not. Because every single one of us at all hours of the day, either consciously or unconsciously, are looking to someone or something to help us to save us, to supply and justify our existence. For example, many of us are functionally crying Hosanna or save us to our jobs. You know, we're looking to our jobs for our sense of worth and hope in this life. Now for others, a job is just a job. But what really matters is the money, the income that that job produces. So we functionally sing our hearts' hosannas to our retirement accounts, our savings accounts, because we ultimately look to our finances for our help and our salvation. Now, not all of us are that superficial. We're not that interested in money. The most important thing in our lives instead is family. Right? Our spouses, our children, our extended clans. It's those relationships that are really at the heart of our identities, which is why I would say even so many Christians direct their hosannas, their cries to, uh, of save us to their spouses and kids. And I'd say essentially or functionally worshiping them. Now the list of things and people we cry hosanna to goes on and on. But whatever it may be, the reality is every heart is a Hosanna heart. Hungry, needy, looking desperately in this world for a would be Savior. That is something or someone that will lead us to life and help us keep it. And, friends, let me say that's actually a good thing, it's by design. Meaning the issue is not that we have Hosanna desperate hearts, okay? Rather, the issue is who or what is your heart ultimately crying out Hosanna to? Because what you seek for help, you will ultimately rely on. You will serve that thing. And today, what Jesus himself wants to show us here is that there is ultimately one place we must go if we desire true, abundant life. Even in the face of its greatest enemy, which is death. Which is why our passage basically opens with this large crowd of people who are shouting, Hosanna! That's their heart's cry. I mean, this is a moment of ecstasy for them, right? Because they too, like us, were on the hunt for real life. And today, we're actually crying out Hosanna to none other than Jesus. And why is that? It's because in Jesus, they think they found the Messiah, or God's promised Savior, King of Israel. Let's have another look at this scene, chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So our text begins by telling us about this large crowd that's come up to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. And honestly, when I've heard this story told before, you know, I just imagine a couple hundred people. You know, a big crowd like this maybe. Maybe not that big, but... uh, So, this was actually a much larger crowd. This was the biggest Jewish holiday of the year. And here's how likely big this crowd was, all right? The historian Josephus reports that in 66 AD, about 2.7 million people, million people went in and out of Jerusalem during Passover week, okay? And this didn't even count the foreigners. Now it's not likely that everyone from this huge crowd went out to welcome Jesus that day. But imagine that even a very conservative one percent, one percent, maybe about 20 to 30,000 people, did. OK That's, by the way, enough to fill two Spokane arenas, and it's in the realm of possibility. So why was there such a large crowd gathered to to welcome in Jesus? Well, our text tells us it's because the news about Jesus and his mighty, miraculous works had spread, and especially the news of his greatest miracle of all, raising Lazarus from the dead after he'd been in the grave for at least four days. This is how news went completely viral back then, because the report about Lazarus was being shared in Jerusalem, not as some distant rumor, secondhand, third hand. It was actually being shared firsthand. That is by the very people that saw this very miracle happen before their very eyes. Let's read about how their eyewitness spread, eyewitness testimony spread in verse 17. Verse 17. The crowd that had been with him, that is Jesus, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now I want to ask you to imagine just for a moment that you were there when Jesus called Lazarus from the grave. You know, maybe you were one of Lazarus's neighbors, you were a friend, or you were his cousin, and you were there to actually see for yourself the greatest miracle that had ever taken place in the history of Israel or the world. Do you think you could see this and from that moment on talk about literally anything else? No, no. And this is what's happening here. That's what, that's what we're being told, that these people just could not keep their mouth shut and the news was spreading. And this is why we're told the Pharisees, one of uh, Jesus' biggest opponents, they're ready to throw in the towel at this point. On account of these huge crowds, they're already you know, saying just kind of in an exasperated way, oh man, we're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. So picture at this point, Jesus making this triumphal entry into Jerusalem and this crowd parting before him like the waters, right? But first, what you need to notice is that we're told a very important detail about how this crowd showed up for Jesus. Did you happen to notice what the crowd felt was important enough or compelled enough to do before they went to meet Jesus? Because before they went out to meet Jesus, in verse 13, we're told, they took branches of palm trees and then went out to meet him. This is actually a bit strange because there's nothing in the Old Testament that recommends waving palm branches during the Passover. So why all of a sudden are palm branches all of a sudden such a priority for the crowd here? Well, it's because by this time, the palm tree had become the unifying symbol for the nation of Israel. The image of the palm tree was a key symbol representing their nation's military and political strength and spirit. In fact, you know what was imprinted on the coins minted by the Jewish zealots during their war against Rome? The palm tree. Another way to understand what's happening here is that the people here were waving their palm branches in the same way modern peoples wave our national flags. And this also helps us understand why they're shouting Hosanna at Jesus and saying in verse 13, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King, the King of Israel pretty clear at this point what they're expecting right that israel's glorious hour of earthly vindication has finally come because here's the one that we've been waiting for for so long here's the messiah the one who's finally going to raise up that mighty army and finally overthrow our most hated oppressors the romans so it suffices to say that Jesus, at this point, at this very moment, it would have been a perfect time for him to mount a majestic war horse and then come in, make a big dramatic speech announcing, yes, I have heard the will of the people. And yes, I have come to deliver you. I will be your new leader. And the crown would have been quickly placed on his head, right? no doubt. But that's not at all what Jesus does. Because while the crowd is looking for their palm branches, guess what we're told Jesus is looking for? A donkey. A donkey. And it's this donkey, not the palm tree, that's going to show us just what kind of king Jesus actually is and what kind of kingdom he has come to bring. Look with me at verse 14. 14. You see, Jesus surprisingly does not meet people's expectations and arrive on the scene mounted on some majestic warhorse, pulling some mighty chariot. But instead, he arrives seated on a mere beast of burden, a service animal, a young donkey. And we can assume that this whole scene. You know, it's exciting, but it's also a little bit confusing. It was a bit unexpected what Jesus did for the crowd because we're told that even in verse verse 16, that even Jesus' own disciples didn't understand these things. That is until later, which we'll get to later. Now, this does lead us all to a very important question. Why didn't they get it? the crowd, or even the disciples, why didn't they understand what Jesus was trying to communicate here? The short answer is they had Jesus and his kingdom all wrong. They didn't understand what was written to them long ago, already long ago by the prophets. One of them is actually quoted here in verse 15 from Zechariah 9.9. A beautiful passage that foretells that Israel's king will come to save his people, not riding on a war horse, but instead gentle and seated on a donkey. So the Messiah will arrive as a king of peace in divine humility. Zechariah 9 also goes on to prophesy this, that the gentle king will somehow finally bring an end to war, and proclaim God's peace not just to Israel but to the nations and his reign will somehow extend to the very ends of the earth. Not only that, but upon the arrival of this gentle king seated on a donkey, God will usher in a blood covenant that will somehow finally set guilty, condemned prisoners free. Now are we getting a sense of what kind of king Jesus came to be, who he actually is. You see, his great power and glory isn't going to be revealed by him coming on a war horse, you know, rounding up the masses, uh, taking over by sheer coercion and force and by means of, of mere human political power. No. Our king comes riding on a donkey. Now, I'm borrowing heavily from Carrie's message on this very same passage now, but it's here that we as Christians, especially American Christians, need to pay close attention because we're constantly getting caught up in warhorse Christianity. We're constantly trying to advance Jesus' kingdom through earthly power, people power, political power, majority might, whether it's on the left or on the right. Now, I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't be responsible, involved citizens engaged with and shaping our government for the common good. Please don't get me wrong there. Not at all. But we cannot live and act as if that is our ultimate hope. We cannot rest our hosannas or our longings for final victory there because ultimately, government's policy and no amount of human resources can change hearts or transform them from stone into flesh, can they? There's only one who can, our king who rides on a donkey. So what does this mean? What then is the true nature of the reign of such a king? And what does it mean to follow him? Well, as we keep reading, we start to get a fuller picture of what Jesus' kingdom is all about and what his agenda and mission is all about. And ironically, it comes back to something that the Pharisees said. It was kind of an unintentional prophecy on their part. Look at verse 19, what they said about Jesus. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And what happens in the very next verse, verse 20? You see exactly that as we see those outside Israel appear, the Greeks who are very interested in seeing Jesus. Look with me again at verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So we're told that some Greeks were in Jerusalem during the Passover. This wasn't at all unusual, as Greeks were known for being unusually multicultural and cosmopolitan in their search for truth and answers to life's biggest questions. And they must have heard all about Jesus and his mighty signs. Which is why we're told in verse 21 that the Greeks came to the disciples. They found them and they asked, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And, you know, the New Testament, this gospel was originally penned in the Greek. And the Greek actually says we're given, uh, the Greek gives us a sense that they were quite persistent in their asking. In fact, you could, you could translate this, this little clause as the Greeks, the Greeks kept on asking over and over. To see Jesus. And how does Jesus respond to their request? No, I ain't got time for that. No, does he deny their request? No, quite the opposite, because Jesus goes on to say this. It's a major turning point in John's gospel. Huge. And it turns out to be one of the most amazing yeses that God has given to humanity. Look at verse 23 with me. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if you've been with us through this series in John, you're aware that uh, when Jesus talks about his hour or him being glorified, he's talking about one thing. His cross. That's the hour he will be lifted up, exalted, and thus glorified. And interestingly, up to this point, every time the matter of Jesus' hour has come up, it wasn't time yet. For example, chapter 2, verse 4, at Cana, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. In chapter 7, verse 6, at the Feast of Booths, Jesus declares, my hour has not yet come. And in chapter 8, verse 20, in the temple, it's not his hour. But now, at this very moment, when Jesus hears that the world, that even the Gentile Greeks are coming to him, he climactically declares the hour has come. Now is the time for the Son of Man to be truly and utterly glorified. Which means this, my friends. If you really want to see the glory of Jesus the King, we shouldn't be looking to palm trees or their glorious branches. Rather, we must set our eyes upon a very different tree where the righteous branch of David himself would be cut off and nailed there for the sake of all the sons of men. So if you want to see the true glory of God, you must look to the one lifted up and exalted, the true Israelite exalted on an accursed Roman tree, the most accursed tree of all. And then your hope for victory, for triumph, must rest there alone on Christ and him crucified. By the way, that's the only place where any of us will see what sort of true warrior king Jesus was because Jesus did indeed come to be the true liberator of his people. He did indeed come to be God's final yes to both Jews and Greeks and answer all of our deepest cries of Hosanna, save us, help us. And Jesus does this he accomplishes this by taking on defeating our greatest enemy of all which is sin which always leads to death now if you don't want to believe that sin and death are your greatest enemy just imagine if all Jesus came to do was come and defeat the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago or our present equivalent Okay, Rome's defeated now, or that party you despise is defeated now. And then what? That's the key question. And then what? Are any of us under the delusion that everything will be perfect and all of us will live happily ever after that? Because at best, the happily ever after, that delusion might last for a very short span in the span of one generation. But what about after this generation passes away? Sin and death, right? They're still there doing its thing. What kind of problems do you think the next generation will have? That is, as long as they have the same sinful hearts that lead to death that you and I do. Maybe, just maybe, they'll end up back in the same mess That literally every generation since Adam has perpetually gotten themselves into. Friends, again, the reality is our greatest enemy always has been and always will be sin that leads to death. Everything else is literally a symptom of this deepest disease. But here's the astoundingly good news. The hour has come. Your king has come. And he has come to save, once and for all, from sin and death forever. And the very next thing that Jesus says after declaring that his hour has come, it's meant to help us see and understand what it means to live in light of his hour. The hour of his cross. And Jesus gives this teaching through a parable about a seed that has to die. That must die in order to fulfill its true potential. Let's hear from Jesus in verse 24. Verse 24. Truly, truly. You've got to pay attention when Jesus says truly like this, when he repeats it. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... Jesus is saying, behold, my death will be like when a seed is buried, buried, as if to die. And it has no choice but to die if it's to fulfill its, its intended purpose, which is to bear much fruit. How much fruit are we talking here? As Kent Hughes puts it, when you hold a kernel of wheat in your hand, you cannot see what's in it. But quite literally, each grain contains, if it is a good seed, a million similar offspring. So in other words, one death that will lead to life for an untold many. And that is what Jesus is trying to get across to us, that he is that one, and that he is the only true source of this abundant life. And it's here that we can start to make sense of what Jesus will say next about loving and hating one's life, which understandably sounds a bit odd to us. You know, is is Jesus against self-esteem or self-respect? No, he's not talking about anything like that because it's really not odd at all what he's saying. Because when Jesus speaks of loving your own life, what he's getting at, is that we're all, we're all doing this. It's something that we're all doing this very moment, which is relying on something or someone to save our lives. Because whatever you rely on is what you truly love. And what you truly love, that's what your heart is crying out Hosanna to. So where would you say your heart is in the habit of directing its hosannas to? Are you looking primarily to your leisure time and things like vacations, exotic experiences for your comfort and salvation? Is that your reward? All of which, uh, if we're being honest, never seems to quite fulfill or rejuvenate, rejuvenate us quite like we hope they would. Or is your hope for salvation and help primarily fixated on politicians and their promises? Your heart's cry to them is, oh, please save us. We beg of you in 2024. This is a year that everything's going to be different. (sighs) How many elections have you been through in your lifetime? Or are your hosannas fixated on the worldly success of your children. That's your hope for the future. Or maybe it's your job, or the success of your business, or your hope for some thrilling romantic relationship. Now, once again, don't get me wrong. Um, Families, romance, vacations, civil engagement, all of these are good things. But they cease to be so when they become ultimate things, because to any such idolatry, Jesus warns us, whoever loves his life loses it. Now, good thing Jesus doesn't end it there, because what follows that warning is this most wonderful and most precious promise, which is, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And here's what it ultimately means to hate our lives in this world. It actually only makes sense if we come back to a key statement that Jesus made right before he raised Lazarus from the dead. And it's Jesus clearly telling us where life actually originates from. Flip back with me there to chapter 11, verse 25. Chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said to her I am the resurrection and the life whoever believes in me though he die yet shall he live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die do you believe this do you believe this friends uh, i dare say that to believe this good news What Jesus just said here will compel you to hate your life in this world. You're going to all of a sudden feel free to stop worshiping this creation for life and come to worship the creator for life. And if you rely or believe Jesus, the one who is the resurrection and the life, you're all of a sudden going to find yourself alive. And at the same time, despising, kind of hating all other would-be imposters to life in this world. And I love this. And I know believers have experienced this. This all of a sudden frees us to fear not. Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Jesus said to her, right? Right? Because all of a sudden, like condemned prisoners, we'll finally be set free, unbound from our burial clothes and brought to life and clothed in his righteousness and life, abiding in Jesus' very presence, just like Lazarus did, right? And you know what? That's the, the very next thing that Jesus promises us if we take him at his word, He promises us his unending, abiding presence. Look again with me at verse 26, where Jesus gives this most glorious promise. Verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And here's what Jesus is ultimately inviting us into. To be with him and that's what this following and serving business is all about because you will you will also follow and seek to serve whatever it is that you rely on for life whatever you love for life and here's what following christ who is crucified for our sake actually looks like over time you will come to understand who he is more and more and then you'll all of a sudden see that your life is being united to the true life and you'll be more and more devoted to him. Now, what does that concretely look like? Uh, well, Jesus is going to elaborate, so keep coming. You know, stick with us. We'll, we'll get there. But I'll at least say this. We're given a hint last week when we saw someone washing some feet. Okay. That said, Jesus sums up serving and following him in the other Gospels in this way. We must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Like him, we must die. No, that does not mean that we're going to atone for anyone's sins. Definitely not our own. But as we carry our cross and we follow Jesus by his grace in God's love, Guess what takes place? Our very lives come to bear witness. They come to bear witness to others, to the true cross, which, yes, does actually atone for sins, not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. And not only will our lives bear witness to his cross, we're also going to bear witness to his resurrection. Like the crowds witnessing to, to Lazarus, raised from the dead in Jerusalem. The earliest Christians will do the same for Jesus' resurrection in a few days' time, actually, after this passage. And so it goes on to the ends of the earth to this very day. Now, did you happen to see Jesus' resurrection promise near the end of this passage? Verse 26. Verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Where is Jesus going to be? By way of his glorious cross? He's heading to none other than his glorious risen throne, is he not? And again, where does the risen king promise his servants will also be? there will my servant be also. What a precious comfort to those of us who have lost loved ones in the Lord. And here's the finally astoundingly good news about being found in Christ Jesus. It means incomparable honor. All the honor that you have ever hoped for, wished for, desired. Because when all is said and done, those who have relied on Jesus and followed and thus served him will be honored by none other than God the Father himself. The Greeks wanted to see Jesus, but it was God the Father who was seeing them, right? So, how can this be? how can this be that God the Father would honor any of us? The answer is, for God so loved the world, he heard our desperate cries of Hosanna, and he gave his only Son, who took upon himself our dishonor, so that we may be clothed in his very honor. And this is why those who have relied on Jesus, followed Jesus, and served Jesus will one day stand before him and will hear the loving voice of the Father say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Will you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father. Our Father, hallowed be your most holy name. Your kingdom come, Lord. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let us rely on you alone for our daily bread, for life, for breath, for everything. And let us also rely completely on your forgiveness for all of our debts So that we may also forgive and be gracious as you are most gracious, gentle, merciful. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Help us to hate our lives in this world, to not be of this world. Instead, lead us in the path of righteousness for your name's sake. Make us your servants because we long to see you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.